basic needs are not being met, if you have not slept, if you do not have stable housing, if you have not had a meal, your ability to connect, engage, and focus on learning is virtually impossible. I mean, children, just like adults, cannot emotionally self-regulate when they're in a state of trauma, stress, or panic. It's physiologically impossible. Welcome to How to Have Kids Love Learning, where we explore ideas and strategies for parents and educators that help students thrive. I'm your host, Ed Madison. I'm a professor and researcher at the University of Oregon and serve as executive director of the Journalistic Learning Initiative, a nonprofit organization that empowers middle and high school students to discover their voice, improve academic outcomes, and become self-directed learners through project-based storytelling. Teaching students to become effective communicators is at the heart of JLI's work. Rhonda Neese is an assistant professor in the Department of Special Education and Clinical Sciences at the University of Oregon College of Education. Her research involves reducing exclusionary school disciplinary practices. Dr. Neese also provides technical assistance to state, district, and school level teams across the nation on preventative practices, including addressing implicit bias in school discipline, effective classroom uh, management strategies, and bullying prevention. Um, Rhonda, so great to, to chat with you and have you um, here again. And you know, when we first talked, I was working on this juvenile justice um, documentary, and I remember thinking every school administrator should hear what you have to say, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is why I wanted to wanted to have you back. But let's start with this whole the term implicit bias because I I don't know that everyone knows exactly what that means. Right. So yeah, thanks for having me, Ed. It's always it's always just such a joy to connect with you and and to support the amazing work that you do. Um, so when we talk about implicit bias. It's important that we separate that out from explicit forms of bias or, you know, systemic racism or structural inequalities, right? So implicit bias, there's a real cognitive approach to understanding implicit bias. This is our quick, fast reaction to a question, a prompt, something that we see that triggers a bias that many of us don't know that we hold. And it may be very inconsistent with our own personal values. Um, so I will, you know, share a couple examples about implicit bias, but oftentimes they can even be against, you know, our, our own in-group. So I was at a professional conference and I was speaking to a male colleague of mine and a woman walked up and, and she smiled at him and he smiled back and out my mouth goes, oh, is this your wife? Mm. And we're at a professional conference. Right. Like, why? Why would I assume that just because he is smiling at a woman, this would be his spouse? And he immediately was like, like, no, this is my colleague, Professor so-and-so, which makes absolutely more sense that another, you know, professor um, and and professional woman was at this conference. Yet this bias was triggered in my brain, seeing a man and a woman smile at each other. Does that mean that I hold biases against professional women just like myself? Absolutely not. But it came about in a very split section, a second reaction. And so when when folks are 
put in situations where they need to make a split sex a split second uh, response, give a pl- split split second. My goodness, that's like a tongue twister. Um, reaction to something. Oftentimes, they play on these biases that are very much tied to stereotypes that we have seen. Um, in images, through media, through many different uh, forms within our own personal and professional lives throughout our life. And so it triggers a reaction that may catch us by surprise. So for example, here's another example. If you are a six foot seven African-American male, chances are you have been asked numerous times throughout your life if you play basketball, mm. right? There, there is an assumption of physicality and athleticism that's associated with your physical presentation because of the stereotype, even though there may be no other reason aside from your height and your race that people are assuming those attributes to you. They're assuming that you're a basketball player. Right, right. When we talk about like the, the prison to, you know, the school to prison pipeline, um, you know, and, and how it disproportionately affects students of color. Um, you know, how does that tie into disciplinary practices in terms of like sus- suspensions or referrals or things that happen in the school that that uh, are a result sometimes of implicit bias, but also just um, old policies, you know, in terms of how to manage these kinds of um, situations with students? Yeah, that's a great question. So when we look at school discipline data and we disaggregate that means you know break out that data by time of day and then also by the race and ethnicity or the gender of the students we're able to spot when implicit biases are more likely to play a factor in decision making so what does this mean there are specific times of day Mm. and situations in which your implicit biases are more likely to be triggered. So as I mentioned, split-second decision-making. Oftentimes when you are tired, hungry, irritable, those things occur. And so when we look at, for example, a Black student and a white student engaging in the exact same unwanted behavior, subjective unwanted behavior, for example, at a time when the teacher may be tired or hungry, it's right before lunchtime, we see in those split second decision making that the likelihood that the black student receives a harsher response or consequence from the teacher goes up versus other times of day. Now, that's different because, again, when we try and address how implicit biases lead to disproportionate decision making, what we work on is slowing our response instead of just saying out of my classroom which is not only harsh and punitive, but doesn't actually lead to problem solving and is disproportionately given to students of color. When we slow our response instead and say, let's check in after class, or I know right now we're tired, but let's finish this one thing. When we actually tell ourselves to take a breath, take a step away from our decision-making, we're much more likely to act in a way that aligns better with our values. It's like the classic, you know, guidance you've been given around writing angry emails, right? Right. If you are angry when writing an email, what is the advice? Write the email, save it to draft, (laughs) sleep on it, and then in the morning, reread it and make make a choice if that actually is going to lead to productive conversations and change, right? We have to slow our response because it leads to better decision making. And it reduces the likelihood that our biases will come out 
in these split second decision making moments when we take space from mm -hmm. Um, you know, I know that non-compliance is a term that's often used and cited as reasons that kids get referrals sent to the principal. And sometimes it can be like dozing off or, you know, issues that are indicators of domestic uh, problems, food insecurities at home, um, not getting enough sleep, uh, whatever. And, um, and I don't know how we help um, teachers to, to take those into consideration when they're looking at kids no matter if they're black or brown kids, but, you know, just kids who are coming from, um, you know, uh, homes where there might be more challenges at home. Certainly. I mean, so much of the work that we do in the research that I do and the colleagues that I work with do with educators is about really understanding the why behind the behavior, right? Like behaviors don't just like operate in isolation. There are things that trigger non-compliance or a student not wanting to engage in a task, right? And a lot of times it's either the task is difficult, there's something aversive about it, right? Most students would rather look bad than stupid. Like they would rather escape, act out to escape an academic task that's too challenging for them than to sit there and engage in you know, a behavior that's challenging for many adults, which is to ask for help and to admit when you need support, right? Like that is something that many of us struggle with. But understanding the why sometimes comes back to those basic fundamental needs. If your basic needs are not being met, if you have not slept, if you do not have stable housing, if you have not had a meal, your ability to connect, engage, and focus on learning is virtually impossible. I mean, children, just like adults, cannot emotionally self-regulate when they're in a state of trauma, stress, or panic. It's physiologically impossible. And most of us cannot focus, engage, or attend to a task when we're hungry, when we're exhausted, or when we have a million other things playing, playing a role in what's dictating our behaviors. So one of the biggest things that we work on with educators is something that educators are great at, and we need to be even better at with the students with the greatest needs, which is building and sustaining relationships. Because when a teacher does something as small yet profound as greeting students as the, at the door when they come in, you're able to see in the faces of kids, a student who may be exhausted, you can tell when something has happened before they even walk in the door. And that's your opportunity to check in and say, what's going on? You seem a little down right now. Do you need a minute? Do you need a chance to talk and be able to actually build the relationship, meet those basic needs, and then be able to really get into learning. Students want to thrive. Kids like anyone else, they want to be successful in school. And many of them may not have the tools to do so. But we also know that kids will work very, very hard for some adults and are glad to do nothing for another. Mm. another adult, right? And that's because of relationships. The, the, the teacher that we work hard for really sets us up for success and is invested in us and knows that they're going to hold us to a high standard. Mm -hmm. Teachers who haven't built those relationships, we don't care about being in their class. We know they don't like us. We get those senses very early on. I wonder about the structure of our secondary schools, though, that has, uh, you know, a teacher teaching, you know, five sections of, you know, a particular discipline. And, and, and really not having it. I mean, it's, it's a lot to ask to have a personal relationship with it, with, you know, all every child, if you've got, 
you know, whatever the math is of, of that many students. Um, but I wanted to ask you, you know, I, I know, um, so suspension, which is, is a, a prevalent thing, um, it, you know, it, it, it basically takes kids, uh, they, they have even a greater lapse in terms of their instruction, but it also sends the message that you don't, you don't belong here. Um, are there um, you just suggestions or strategies you've had that are um, that you offer administrators and teachers that are an alternative to um, suspension? Yes, and the alternative to suspension is part of a continuum, right? It starts all the way back in that classroom because teachers are kind of the gatekeepers, right? If we are responding to low-level behaviors, things like, you know, just classic kid behavior in classrooms in instructional and effective ways. We know how to de-escalate. We know how to partner kids with other kids who are on task or really provide reinforcement to keep class engaging and supportive. We see less kids being sent out of those classrooms to begin with. For students who need additional support, who say have been sent out of class because the teacher is saying their behavior is more than I can handle now, we work with administrators on instructional and restorative alternatives to exclusion. And what does that look like? It looks like identifying with the student what happened, why it happened, and what would be an appropriate alternative, right? So if they're interrupting class, why is it that they're interrupting class? Is it that they didn't understand the direction, then they needed more support? Okay, what would have been a better way of getting the support that you needed? And then practicing those skills with the students and supporting the students in reconnecting back with their teacher and build, and making amends, but in the process of making amends, clarifying, here's what I really needed. I needed support. I didn't know how to ask for help. Here are the things that you can do, teacher, to help me and allowing the teacher and the students to come together. Because really the problem, the biggest overarching issue with suspension is that it doesn't change student behavior for the better right? Students do not come back from being suspended, more academically engaged, more academically on target and behaving better in class. Oftentimes all of it gets worse. And so it is moving schools away from the exclusionary practices into practices that we know are effective, which are instructional, which are restorative, which build relationships and build. And that's the goal. But again, it's part, it's not just the principals can be doing a great job doing that in class, but it has to, or outside in the office, but it has to connect back to the classroom. I'm curious, I don't know if you've done any, any uh, research around COVID and its impact. I know that anecdotally, I hear from teachers that, you know, behaviorally uh, students are coming back and, and are, they, you know, they, they, t- out of two years of missing, you know, day-to-day instruction, they really have lost it in terms of just uh you know social graces like not chatting when there's a guest speaker or you know and i actually even noticed it with some of my own students i'm curious what you're what you what you're finding in terms of what covid um, has left us with yeah certainly i you know teachers are doing an extraordinary job reteaching those expectations right how do we engage in in a collective environment with other humans? Like how do we show, I love that term social graces. How do we make people feel welcome here? And how do, how does it feel when we feel welcome or when we feel disrespected and really reteaching expectations has been 
the bread and butter of a lot of successful schools. What we've seen is that when teachers are invested in, we did a, we did a study in which we, after, after, in the first year back, we worked with schools. We had a sample of treatment schools and a sample of control schools. And we really spent time just in the classrooms doing basic, basic things, welcoming students at the door, teaching, modeling, and reinforcing pro-social skills in the classroom and wrapping up class with intention, like having a way to send them out on a positive note. And what we saw is in all across all of our treatment schools, academic engagement went up, disruptive behaviors went down. And because of that investment in the classroom, the biggest, most statistically significant impact was on suspensions. There were lower rates of suspensions across of our treatment schools. It was the biggest impact just based on what teachers were doing in the classroom to really pull it back to let's create an environment and a culture in this classroom that's welcoming, inclusive, and supportive. And how do we all take part in that? Do you have recommendations for parents who uh, may sense that, um, you know, just the stories they're hearing from their child when they come home um, indicate that there might be some disproportionate uh, discipline going on at their school? Yeah, parents are, uh, can be and are, are, you know, some of our greatest advocates for creating school environments that support all children, but especially children with the greatest needs. You know, there are stories and kids see it and they have reported it even in qualitative studies we've done clear as day. I see two kids doing the same thing. One of them has, you know, a mark on their back, right? A bad reputation. They're different than everybody. And they get kicked out, whereas the other one doesn't. Like they talk about disproportionality and they see it. And for parents to be able, the mo- honestly, the most important time to advocate for more inclusive supports is when something has happened to your own child, right? When you're saying the best thing that we can do for my child is to also help the other child, right? Is to make sure that that student knows what happened, what went wrong and how they can make amends and support this environment because kids aren't gonna go away. If something happens, interpersonal conflict between two kids in elementary school, that these students are still gonna be together in middle and high school. It benefits all of us to invest in all children and really address those issues of disparities in our schools. Rhonda, this has been terrific. Uh, how do people find you and your work? Um, obviously through the University of Oregon uh, College of Education, but is there anything else uh, for those who might hear yeah. this and want to follow up? Well, we have a Twitter page and a website. Uh, our Twitter page, what do people say? Hashtag niece underscore lab. Is that how the kids speak these days, Ed? I don't know. Yeah, I guess so, Yeah. <laughs> But we also have a website, nicelab.org, um, and you can find resources to a lot of the intervention work that we do um, and, and and the work that we're really moving forward with schools and communities. All right. And are you are you consulting school districts and uh, working in or mostly area that research? We do. Yeah, good. Yeah, we do. We do consult with school districts. Um, and, and, and kind of all over the place. And some of it is tied to the work that we're doing with federal grant dollars uh-huh. and others are not, right? Districts that are seeking out supports. Terrific. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ed. How 
How to Have Kids Love Learning is produced by the Journalistic Learning Initiative. For more information about our work, please visit journalisticlearning.com.